The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Would you take your Bibles, please, the book of Acts again, Acts chapter 10. You remember that Luke and Acts is Luke's work of writing his two-volume work. He's writing it for Theophilus and for all of us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's writing about all that Jesus began to do in Luke's gospel and all that Jesus continued doing through the apostles in the book of Acts. And Luke has recorded how Philip traveled from Azotus to Lydda and Joppa and then to Caesarea, preaching the gospel through all those regions. And he records that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 40. And we saw last week how God authenticated and illustrated God's messenger and the message through healing and miracles. And the Spirit of God brings about in the next great expansion of the gospel witness to the Gentiles, and it kind of begins here. In some senses, you could say it begins all the way back in chapter 8 as Philip is traveling and preaching the gospel and Peter is coming behind him and things are happening. And right here in chapter 10, it sort of begins the whole new chapter. We saw in the very beginning that the Acts tells a story how the gospel begins at Jerusalem and Judea and goes to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And for those Jews living in that time, Rome was kind of that typical image of the ends of the earth. And we know the ends of the earth would be Australia, all the way out here, and other places in the world where the gospel has not been not gone, not been made known. So this is a big turning point as the gospel now expands to include the Gentiles. Well, let's read... Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1 and reading down to verse 8. The Bible says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius... And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his precious word. Just to give you a little bit of background behind the story, Caesarea is kind of the setting. It's the city and town where the story takes place. It's a very important town and city. It was built by Herod the Great on what was called the Tower of Strato, an older uh, structure there. It was located on a trade route that went from Tyre to Egypt, and it was also established on a very good and excellent harbor. And therefore, it was an important commercial and cultural center. 
It had in it an amphitheater, a hippodrome, and a temple to Caesar. So it had a place for the acting out of plays and the reading of documents and, and that sort of thing. a public theater. It also had a place for the watching of chariot races and horse races, and it had a temple to, uh, for the worship of Caesar. It was mostly inhabited by Gentiles, and it was a place where the Roman provincial capital was established. And there was a very heavy Roman presence there. The prefect had his quarters there, and also the Italian cohort, of which Cornelius was one of the centurions. In a cohort, there was uh, six units of a hundred men. And then 10 of those cohorts would make up one Roman legion. Well, there was one cohort here called the Italian cohort. And Cornelius is a centurion in charge of 100 men. Uh, He would have kind of the equivalence of a modern-day army captain. He was a non-commissioned officer with a fairly high social status. And centurions were required by the Romans to be good leaders, to be wise, to be careful thinkers. And we know about Cornelius, that he had origins in pagan Roman worship. The title of our message this morning is Responding to the Light that God Has Given. I want us all to see how Cornelius responded and be challenged about how we respond. Many years ago, uh, when Jonathan was, I think Heather might have been pregnant with Jonathan, I went to uh, University of British Columbia I didn't last there very long for uh, relatively obvious reasons, but I did take a financial accounting class. And as we sat in this class every Monday night for about uh, three hours, I think it was, there was one voice that whenever it spoke up, you could just almost hear an audible groan amongst the students. And as the teacher was writing on the blackboard and he'd hear the voice, he'd, uh, he'd turn around, he'd just see his face sink. And yes, and this young man... Uh, not a Christian, none of them were. And he said, do, do, do we have to know this? Is this going to be on the exam? And he didn't ask it once. He asked it probably twice a night for the whole course. And finally, my teacher, God bless him, poor guy, turned around and said, look, if I'm telling you this, you have to know it, and it might be on the exam. And he turned around and kept writing. What's the point? We've all received a certain amount of knowledge and information, and we are responsible for what we do with it. And all of us sitting here this morning are are beautifully and thoroughly equipped with the Word of God and the Spirit of God for those who know the Lord Jesus as Savior. And we are responsible for what we have been told and what we understand and how we relate and how we respond to what we understand. And this man named Cornelius had certainly responded to the knowledge that he had been given. And I want us to see this morning, there is an outline in the little green sheet there. You want to pull it out. I want us to see four things. Number one, the light Cornelius had received. Number two, the response Cornelius made. Thirdly, the blessing that Cornelius received. And fourthly, I want us to look at the response that we are to make. So first of all, the light Cornelius had, and he had it by God's immense grace. Never lose sight of that. What we know about Christ, where we are in our studies, where we are in our growth curve and the Christian life, we have and we have because of God's immense grace toward us. 
I want you to notice it says in verse 2 that he was one who feared God. He was, in a technical sense, a God-fearer. You say, it's kind of the same thing. Not quite. A God-fearer in the New Testament context was one person who was sympathetic to Judaism as a Gentile. He was not a full Jewish proselyte. He had not undergone circumcision. If he had gone up to the temple to worship, he could go to the court of the Gentiles, but he could go no further. So he was not a proselyte. He was just one who feared God. We do know that these God-fearers were in the synagogues. For example, in Acts 13 and verse 16, Paul is preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and he addresses the Jews and those who fear God, speaking about that group of Gentiles that were in the synagogue but not truly Jewish proselytes. He was one exposed to first century Judaistic monotheism, the worship of the one true God. By God's grace, he had heard of the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. By God's grace, he had heard of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And by God's grace, he'd heard of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And as he'd gone to synagogue each, uh, I'm assuming Saturday, uh, as they got together to worship, they would have a reading of the different parts of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He would have heard a brief exposition of Scripture. In fact, uh, a service in a synagogue was not a lot different in form to what we have today. Uh, He would have heard an exposition. He would have heard about the necessity to keep the law of God. But there's something else here. He was one who had heard of the early ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. And you say, how do you know that? Well, look over in Acts chapter 10 and verses 34 to 38. We're going to look at this in detail in a couple of weeks. But just for now, uh, Peter is beginning his sermon that day in Cornelius' house. And this is what he says in verse 37 and 38. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout Judea, starting from Galilee and after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. You yourselves know. So clearly, Cornelius and those gathered in his house that morning had an understanding of who Jesus was. He understood that Jesus of Nazareth and John's baptism, and he had come into that information by God's amazing grace. You say, how? I don't know how. Uh, He had Roman buddies that were in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. He could have heard from one of them. Something else here. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 40, the Bible tells us that Philip preached the gospel in all those cities, uh, beginning at Azotus, Lydda, Joppa, and all the way up to Caesarea, right where he is. In fact, Philip is found there at the end of the book of Acts. He's still there. He's still ministering, still preaching. So it is possible, I want to emphasize that, it's possible that Cornelius had heard the gospel from Philip. We're not told that. You say, I'm speculating. You you could be right, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that he has heard something of the gospel in that sense. And so the question pops up immediately. Why had Cornelius not fully responded to Judaism? Why had Cornelius not yet responded to Philip's gospel, assuming he'd heard it? Was God at work? Yes, absolutely. Does God do his work of salvation in an instant? No, 
<laughs> no, someone shook their head. No. You want an analogy? Ask all the ladies here. Next week's Mother's Day, right? And a lot of the ladies here have given birth. Ask how many of them would like to give birth at an instant. And they'll all say, no way. It's too painful. Well, you know what? It's the very same thing. In someone coming to faith in Christ, it takes time. I know when I first understood the gospel, I was 10 years of age here living in Australia out of my friend's uncle's farm. He had a little Christian camp. It wasn't until three years later at another Christian camp in Canada on the other side of the world when I finally bowed my knee to Christ and understood and accepted what it meant. But it took time. So Cornelius has come into some light of knowledge about God and about the gospel. The question is, how did he respond to what he had heard? I want you to notice, secondly, the response Cornelius made to the light of the knowledge of God's glory. God was at work in this man's life. It's clear. God was already working to draw him into Christ. The Bible tells us in John 6 and verse 44 that no one can come to God unless the Father draws him. And that drawing process might take time. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we're talking about how we are believers in God. And part of that process is through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was at work. The Spirit of God was at work in all of us at some time in the past to draw us to God, to bring us to understand the gospel. God's bringing people happens instantly at times and very slowly in others. In fact, I would argue very rarely does it happen instantly. Mostly it happens slowly. Cornelius had light, meaning he had some form of knowledge. The Spirit of God was certainly at work in his heart. Cornelius responded to the light he had. Now, almost certainly, he had rejected the pagan god of Rome to adhere as much as he did to Judaism. You say, how do you know that? Well, the very fact that his prayers are received and have come before God as a memorial would rule out syncretism, where he'd go to the pagan temple one day and to the synagogue some other day. God would never accept that. But we do know, whatever it is, he is going to the synagogue, he has come into and he is responding to the light that he had. Notice, by the way, the descriptions that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us about Cornelius. If you look in verse 2, it says, a devout man... And if you read it very literally, it would go something like this. A devout man and one fearing God with all his household and giving many alms to the Jewish people and praying to God continually. Uh, Fearing, giving, and praying, they're participles, I-N-G words. Now, my NASB translated with uh, uh, feared, gave, and prayed, like sort of fixed terms. But it's more giving. So the idea is... That being a devout man was explained by those three activities. His devotion was explained by the fact that he was fearing God, giving many alms, and praying continuously. Notice number one, Cornelius was devout. Uh, the word there is eusebis, godly or pious. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 9, the same word is translated as godly. It means the performing of religious acts of worship. It's also translated by the word godliness. It is a believing response to a reception of truth. It required a measure of faith and belief. He responded to what he knew with the worship, worship of God. 
Cornelius' piety and godliness was a form, sorry, a form of it was, ex- try again. Cornelius' devotion was explained by those three additional descriptions. So, secondly, Cornelius is one who feared God. He was a God-fearing man. He responded to the light of the knowledge he had by fearing God. Cornelius lived his life in awe and respect and reverence for God. It was a reverential trust that he had in God. Cornelius lived in respect for God's holiness. If you notice, uh, verse 4, fixing his gaze on the angel and being much alarmed. As you go through the Bible, every time you see somebody come face to face with an angel of God or the angel of the Lord, what's their response? Boredom? No way. What's their response? They tremble in fear. Isaiah, I'm sure he put his hands over his head and he said, Woe is me. I'm ruined. Confronted with the holiness of God, it just struck him to his core. And this man, seeing the angel, was much alarmed. The presence of that heavenly being there terrified him. He had a fear and a respect for God. But you know what? It's worth remembering that the fear of the Lord brings with it a number of promises. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says in Proverbs 1 verse 4, is the beginning of knowledge. Cornelius had some knowledge, some understanding of who God was, and he was responding in the fear of God, and it was leading to more knowledge, as we'll see. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We all want to live like wise people. Nobody wants to goes up and says, I think I'm going to be a fool for my life. If you do, you're probably crazy. No one chooses that. We want to be wise. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The Bible tells us the skill for living life wisely and faithfully is the fear of God. It starts there. In Proverbs 14, verse 27, the Bible promises us that the fear of God is a fountain of life. How do we live long lives? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. The fear of the Lord provokes a hatred of evil in Proverbs 8 and verse 13. It's one of the reasons why I believe that he had renounced and rejected the Italian Roman pagan gods that they worship because the fear of God would lead to a hatred of evil. He couldn't have a part with that. The fear of God in Proverbs 19 verse 23 leads to life. Where does this all end up? Cornelius in his home receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, being baptized and being brought into the church of the living God. He knew what it was to have life and it began with the fear of the Lord. Just time out for a sec. One of the reasons why I believe that we in this day and age, as in every day and age, must preach the wrath of Almighty God and the absolute holiness of God is if we don't understand who God truly is, we can never truly understand who we are. And it begins when we bow and curl up in fear before God who is absolutely holy in the recognition that we're total sinners and we deserve nothing more than God's wrath. Do you know what? As they've studied this and they can prove it, there's a direct correlation towards falling away from the Christian faith and a lack of understanding of the holiness of God and the wrath of Almighty God against sin. They are directly related. And the fear of the Lord leads to life. Real, genuine, spiritual life. And He's on that journey. He's on that path. 
The fear of the Lord. This is one of my one I found I really liked. Psalm 147 and verse 11, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord brings the favor of God. And we can see that in his life right here as God comes to him and gives him this tremendous blessing of being at that pivotal point as God is spreading the gospel outward towards the Gentile nations. It's the fear of God. He was a God-fearing man. I have to admit, as I was studying this, the question that kept going through the back of my mind as I read all this and, and studied and worked my way through it, was Cornelius already converted? I consulted 10 commentaries, going back as far as John Calvin and Matthew Henry and all the way up to the most recent one. And I think it was three out of the 10 said yes. Some vaguely, John Calvin just said, yep, absolutely. He was converted in the pattern of Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, right? And Calvin said that's exactly where he was. Matthew Henry had a better approach, I think. He said uh, he responded to the light he had. That's why I got my sermon title. He responded to the light he had in worship, godliness, and fear of God, and God directed him to where he would find the full revelation of all of it. That's not an exact quote. It's my briefly summarized version of it. So I believe that he's in the process. He has come into understanding of something of who God is and he has responded in faith and obedience to the best that he understood and this is where he's at. Notice thirdly, Cornelius, I'll try it slowly in English, Cornelius responded by sharing in the influencing of those who were his household. You see it in verse 2 again. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household. Cornelius made sure that those under his care followed his lead and understood the light that he had. He was so convinced of what he had understood that he gathered his household and led them in the same direction. By the way, that doesn't just mean Cornelius' wife and three kids. That means Cornelius, his wife, his kids, his servants, his soldiers, everybody under his direct influence. In other words, he looked around at all those around him and said, who needs to hear this and began to make it known. And he was leading them in that direction. So they were following. In fact, if you look down, you'll see in verse number seven, two of his servants and a devout soldier. He sent them off to find Peter. If you look at uh, verse 22 of the same chapter, they describe uh, Cornelius to him and they give a very unbiased description of their leader, Cornelius. In other words, these people had been influenced by his understanding of truth. Notice fourthly, Cornelius responded with the giving of alms. And that was a measure of faith, an act of faith. In the synagogue teaching of the day, uh, piety or godliness involved three things. Number one, the giving of alms to the poor. Number two, the praying continuously. And thirdly, fasting regularly. Now, they understood it in a very unique way. They saw it as just going without food or water as a way to humble themselves before God. But I remembered this. Take your Bibles. Go back to Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58. I want to read a section here because this this really helps us understand where Cornelius is at because he fits this picture really well. Isaiah 58, beginning at verse 5, the Bible says, Is it a fast like this which I choose? It's God speaking. 
a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not, verse 7, to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your covery will speedily bring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Verse 9, this is, this is great. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Go back to Cornelius in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. What do we see him doing? He's fearing God with all his household. He's giving alms to the Jewish people and he's praying to God regularly. His giving of alms was a way of fasting by God's definition in the book of Isaiah. In other words, it wasn't just personal uh, humility depriving himself of food. It was giving what he had and sharing it with the poor as a way of doing without so others could be provided for. He was fasting in a very biblical and godly way. Notice fifthly, Cornelius responded to the light of the knowledge he had by praying continuously. I won't try and pronounce the Greek, but the idea for praying is the idea of begging of God. And the idea in the Greek is always through all things. Cornelius responded to God with prayer, devoted, continual begging of God in prayer. Listen, beloved. I'm going to ask the most convicting question that any preacher can ask of himself and his congregation. How's your prayer life? I'm sitting here with a pastor friend of mine, uh, Brother Rod, the other day, and we were both just lamenting. We don't pray enough. There's not enough days in the hour to pray enough. We need to pray more. Why is prayer so critical? Because prayer is the most basic, foundational, fundamental exercise of faith that there is. To bow the knee before God, to lift up our hands and our hearts before God and simply begin to pray, to approach God, to speak to God, to address God Almighty in the faith that God will hear, will listen, and will answer. That is faith. The reality of our Christian lives can be shown by the reality of a prayer life. Our prayer lives, don't despair over that. Our prayer lives can grow and increase. And there's lots of things we can do to develop and enhance and excel in prayer. To grow in our life of prayer before the Lord. But this man here was praying continually. Prayer emphasizes the provision found only in God and emphasizes the absolute neediness of man. And a man can only truly pray because God has already truly touched his spirit. And we know that God is at work in this man's life. He's drawing him close. Remember this. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What was the context of which that happened? Prayer. 120 people gathered up in the upper room, praying, crying out to God in prayer, and the Spirit came. The church was marked in its early days by a devotion to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, communion, and prayer. 
And my analytical mind goes, I just wonder if the Jews, those disciples of Jesus, devoted to prayer and the Spirit came in power. And here's Cornelius. He's devoted to prayer and the things begin to happen and the Spirit comes on those group in a similar circumstance. It began in a prayer meeting. So what was he praying for? He said, come on, Nelson. It doesn't even say what he's praying for in the text. You know what? Notice over in Acts chapter 11, verses 13, we're given a little hint at what I think it's safe to say he was praying for. Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, over a page or two. And Peter is giving his report back at Jerusalem, and this is how he describes Cornelius in verse 13. It says, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. What do you think he was praying for? He heard about the one true God of Israel. He had heard something about Jesus. He had gone to synagogue however many times, but the hot topic amongst the Jews in that day and age, given what they'd heard about John the Baptist, would have been what? Messiah. And I'm absolutely convinced. In fact, some of the commentators I examined, those 10 guys I read, a number of them said emphatically he was praying for an understanding and for the coming of the Messiah like his Jewish synagogue friends were praying about. You could say, again, you're you're running on speculation. Maybe, but I think it's an educated speculation based on what the text does tell us. Listen. Listen. Cornelius responded to the light he had in godly piety, worshiping God, by fearing the Lord with all his household, by giving alms to the poor, by praying continually in genuine faith. And before we go any further, brothers and sisters, how are you responding to the light you have? And by the way, let me rephrase that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we responding to the light that God has given us. Because I stand underneath this message right alongside of you. And there's a part of me who wants to preach and run down and sit beside Con and listen for a second, then come back up and preach and run back down and sit down and listen. Because I need to hear this. How am I responding? How are we responding to what we understand and know? The scriptures, listen, it's not enough to know theology. It's not enough to memorize this thing and meditate on it and put it down and walk it out and live as if it never happened. It won't cut it. When we stand before God and we say, what'd you do with your life? Well, I bought lots of Bibles. I read them all the time. Did you live them out? I never quite got there. No. Because the reality of genuine salvation isn't just prayer. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of responding to what you know and understand. There's a dear friend of mine who has been saved later in life. And he often laments that he began his journey so late. But he's growing like this. His growth curve is almost a straight vertical as he's trying to grasp and understand. He's responding to what he has known. Brother and sister in Christ, you can sit and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, online, internet. You can listen to all the greatest preachers in the world. But if it doesn't change our lives, not only is it no good, it's actually to a great detriment to us because we will be held accountable 
God has told us and God will hold us accountable for what we understand and how we have responded. And this man has responded. Notice sixthly, last one on this, this list. Cornelius responded to the light he had with obedience. Remember, all this is prior to Peter's coming and preaching. All this is prior to the Spirit coming in power in chapter 10, the later part. He's an outsider, although sympathetic to Judaism. And the angel of the Lord appears to him, of all people in Caesarea. It appears to him. And the angel commands Cornelius to send for Peter. And Cornelius immediately obeys the word of God that he's been given. And you know what? Because Cornelius knows more light is coming. Go and send for Peter. He will come and he will bring you words by which you will be saved. And immediately he responds and sends those two guys off. He obeys immediately whatever God has told him to do. Cornelius had some light. He had heard through the Jews of God and the scriptures. He had heard of Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry. He possibly heard the gospel preaching of Philip. So the question comes up, why had he not fully responded? Why hadn't he gone further? And brothers and sisters in Christ, I have to say with great emphasis, God is sovereign over the salvation of souls. God saves, absolutely. God saves when and where He chooses. What does that mean for us? You're praying for somebody? Someone in your life that you are just broken hearted over? Keep praying. God is at work. The Bible tells us that when we lift up our hearts in prayer like that, God is already rising to answer. And sometimes the answers come before the words even get all the way out of our mouth. And sometimes the answers come weeks, years, and even decades later. But God is at work, and God is sovereign, and God is working in Cornelius' life. And God, I'm convinced, had more in mind than just his own conversion. He had in mind the great progression of the gospel to all nations. But for this guy here, what struck me out of this text was he responded to what he had been told. He responded to what he knew. He responded in faith, and God dealt in grace with him. Let's move on. I want you to notice, thirdly, the blessing that Cornelius received from God. The blessing he received proves I'm not reading too much into this. I was kind of worried. Maybe I'm just... Maybe the the modern scholars are right. Maybe there was nothing more than just a practical, basic, nothing piety. But no, 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 no. As I read it, as I study it, as I look at it, I pray over it, and I see how God blessed and responded to Cornelius, I'm convinced there's more to it than that. He goes up to pray. It's the ninth hour. At 3 p.m. outside, it's the hour of the evening sacrifice. A little interesting point. They went up on the rooftop often to pray. So in the next story, we see Peter goes up on the rooftop to pray. Why'd they do that? I found out that what they would do is they would figure out where Jerusalem was. and oh, There it is. And they would orient themselves toward Jerusalem. Apparently, Jerusalem and this temple was so high up, and the outside walls were highly polished marble. And at certain times, as the sun hit certain spots, the reflection off of the side of the temple would have been like a great blazing beacon. So these people praying on their rooftops possibly could see the temple. And they, all, they prayed toward the temple. 
I think Wes was looking about Solomon's prayer in the Bible study last week. And one of the things they did was pray toward this place. Now, in Caesarea, he couldn't have seen it. There's mountains in the way. But he goes up and he prays at the time of the evening sacrifice. He's praying before God. And by the way, this is cool. In Luke, the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke's the writer of Acts, what do we see? Zacharias goes into the temple at the hour of prayer and he offers incense upon the altar. And as he's standing there inside this beautiful place, he has one opportunity in his entire priestly career to go in and burn incense before the Lord and pray on behalf of the nation. And as he's standing there praying and the smoke is rising up off this incense towards God in heaven, the smoke begins to clear. There's an angel standing right there for the first time in 400 some odd years. And you know what the angel says to Zacharias? Your prayer's been heard. What's he say here? Your prayers have risen as a memorial before God. In other words, your prayers have been heard. I think it's striking, just the parallel. You could say it's nothing and that's okay. An angel of God tells him, Tells Cornelius his prayers and his alms have ascended before God as a memorial. Cornelius' prayers have been accepted by God in the Old Testament language of a pleasing sacrifice that involved prayer. Stick your finger in Acts 10 and flip all the way back in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. And God is instructing Moses to Aaron about how they had to exercise the offerings. And he speaks in Leviticus 2 and the latter part of verse 1 about putting oil and frankincense on it. And verse 2 says, He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of fine flour and its oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion. Notice that a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to God. Sound familiar? It's exactly what the angel is saying to Cornelius. Your prayers and alms have arisen before the face of God as a soothing aroma, a memorial portion before God. The Bible says in Psalm 141 and verse 2, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands in prayer as the evening offering. He's praying. He's crying out to God, pleading with God. I believe it's about the Messiah. But he's praying and the angel says, Your prayers have arisen as a memorial portion. Your prayers are a pleasing sacrifice of worship to God. God's at work in his life. And I think I've told you a story before about my friend Mark in Canada, sitting right there in, in the church in Canada. We preached the gospel and preach and preach and preach and preach, and Mark would sit there and the tears would just run down his face. And he'd tell me afterwards, Nelson, I get it. I just I'm not there yet. And he was praying. He was reading his Bible. He was trying to figure it all out. And he got powerfully saved in a most amazing way. I've told you a story before. I know I have. God was at work. It took months. 
God was at work in this man's life. Cornelius' prayers are a pleasing sacrifice of worship to God. He blessed him by receiving and hearing his prayers. Secondly, God blessed Cornelius by receiving his almsgiving as the fruit of a faith-filled righteous life. How dare I say the word righteous? Well, if you take your Bibles back in Acts chapter 10 and verse number 22... The two servants and the soldier come to Peter and they say, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records Cornelius as a righteous man and a God-fearing man. God blesses Cornelius with a recorded pronouncement by one of his servants in his absence to Peter that he is a righteous, God-fearing man. That's a tremendous testimony. When they write your tombstone, I know guys that go around in, in America particularly, I don't know why it's America, and I think England too, and they look at tombstones and read what tombstones you know, say. Apparently one of them says, here lies Mary Smith. She finally stopped talking. I mean, that's what the tombstone actually says. What are they going to write on your tombstone? What would you like written on your tombstone? Hear God in amazing, marvelous grace in this man's life writes through the pen of Luke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was a righteous, God-fearing man. That's tremendous. God blessed him. God blesses him with the gift of more light as Peter comes and preaches Christ to him. He preaches the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. God richly blesses Cornelius in a day to come with the infilling Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. And God richly blesses Cornelius by including him in the New Testament people of God's own possession. If you go to the first Peter 2 verses 9 to 10... First Peter's written to a Gentile audience, predominantly Gentile, and it describes the people of God as God's own possession, a chosen race, the royal priesthood, God's spiritual house. Cornelius will be called out, is being called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Cornelius was not part of the people of God at this point. Once Cornelius had not received mercy, but now he is receiving mercy. Cornelius, once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, is now included, not through circumcision of his flesh, but circumcision of his heart. Everything changed. For Cornelius, that was God's rich blessing of this man. Cornelius is welcomed into the church of Jesus Christ through baptism of the spirit and baptism of his flesh, water. And he was included. Now, obviously, in that turning point, Cornelius has come to full faith and full understanding. He's filled with the spirit and all those things are an outflow of that. But this part here in Acts, or sorry, Acts 10, 1 to 8, He responded to what he had and God further richly blessed him beyond his wildest imaginations in those days to come. You know, beloved, as I sit there and I just chewed over this yesterday, Cornelius, in comparison to what you hold in your hand and what some of you have on your little tiny phones, this is sunlight up in the sky, sunlight compared to the candle flame that he had. 
He wouldn't even have owned a copy of the scriptures. One copy would have cost something close to a year's wages. He didn't have the Holy Spirit, not yet, but he responded. He responded in godliness, a devout devout life. He responded by fearing God with all his house. He responded by giving alms to Israel's poor. He responded by praying continually. He responded by obeying immediately. But what about us? How have we responded to the brilliant light that God has given us in this book? Brothers and sisters, it's the question that just made me stop and think, back up. We have the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. We're wealthy beyond imagination if that was the only thing we had. We have the whole counsel of God in two testaments, 66 books, but one Overall, overarching message, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It's all there. Everything we need to live this life and understand and walk with God by faith and obedience, it's all here. And we have the Spirit of God who patiently will teach it to us and explain it to us and unravel it for us so we can understand it. The question is, how are we responding? What difference does the gospel make to our lives every single day? What difference does the gospel make to my life every single day? Are we responding by abandoning sin? Every reason to believe that Cornelius had turned his back on the pagan gods that he once worshipped. Are we responding by faith Trusting in God day by day. Are we responding by a life of fearing the Lord? Brothers and sisters, the promises attached to that just goes beyond human comprehension. And God calls us to respond. Are we responding? By godly fasting, going without to share with the poor? Are we responding to the Lord's gift of gospel light by continual prayer? You say, I'm not strong enough to do great work for God. I don't have a voice and I can't preach. I don't have this and I don't have that. Brother and sister, lying in a hospital bed with quadriplegia, your voice can still rise silently to God in prayer. A set of... uh, Dutch lady in World War II hid the Jews. What was her name? Cory Ten Boom. Her mother died of cancer, I think it was, before the Germans came. And as she sat in her bed and slowly faded away to nothing, her, she was absolutely active every single waking moment, crying out to God in prayer for this and that and the other thing. Brother and sister in Christ, how are we responding? We have the Spirit of God. Think of the grace of God. The grace of God in His life that He came in that information and responded to it. The grace of God in your life and my life. Brother and sister, we have grace. God in grace 
gave Christ to be the once for all sacrifice for my sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Why? Because God has grace and kindness. Like he picked up that tongue and he applied that coal to Isaiah's lips and said, your sin is forgiven. God in grace sent Christ to be the sacrifice for sin. God in grace supplied the light of the gospel. Just a side note here. It does not matter how you began this journey in some senses. I was talking with someone this week and we were talking about how we got onto the Christian journey, the life of faith. I looked at the person and I said, do you trust God now? Yes, absolutely. Are you repenting of sin now? Yes, Absolutely. I said, so here you are now in your life and you're striving to understand the scriptures and live in obedience. You're striving to live by faith. You know the Spirit of God is within you. You're on that journey. Keep going. Walk with God by faith. God in grace supplied the Spirit to do that sanctifying work in each of us, to bring us on our own unique path to God. God in grace baptized and immersed us, filled us with the Spirit of God. God in grace included us in His one new man, His one new body, the body of Christ, the church. And God in grace enables and empowers and strengthens and encourages us to respond to God's God's work. God in grace gives the gift of the Spirit of God in faith. Brother and sister in Christ, you have everything you need. Is your desire to walk with the Lord? Is your desire to respond by faith to God? That's the question. And are you responding? We're going to remember the Lord in communion in just a few moments. Before we do that, I want to just take some time and sit quietly as a church. I want you to ask the Lord to help you understand what what you already know, to challenge you in your own heart as to how you are responding to God. Then we're going to come back together and we're going to remind ourselves of that wonderful blessing of salvation as we take the bread and the wine. Just give you a few moments.